Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, host of One Big Thing from Axios. Every week, I talk to leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. We're not going to be changing the world if we don't take some risk. We can't live burying our heads. This technology is here. We're going about it the wrong way because we don't know the stuff to go for. Interviews, ideas, and context, all in 20 minutes or less. That's one big thing from Axios. Find us every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. I think a lot of folks are tired of reading, oh, well, the battle line or the battles happened in this village and then they moved to five kilometers over to this village and then now in the south they're moving elsewhere three kilometers. But the heart of this, the heart of my approach, and I think the heart of what makes a compelling story is empathy. Can I imagine myself in that person's position? What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of The Progress Network, and I'm joined as always by Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of The Progress Network. And What Could Go Right is our weekly podcast looking at, well, what could go right? We're always asking what could go wrong. That seems to be a familiar trope. And rarely do we ask the opposite question of what could go right. And part of the point of the Progress Network and part of the point of this podcast is to ask that question in a world where that question is under asked, in a world where everyone assumes that there are all these things that could go wrong and none of us tend to assume that there are all these things that could go right. But given that the future is inherently unknown and given that each of us are in the process of trying to create that future, presumably a future of our hopes and dreams and not a future of our fears, then it would behoove all of us to ask that question of what could go right a little bit more and entertain the possibility that things might not go as bad as we think and might actually go a bit better and are much more likely to go better if we all collectively take the time to try to make it go better and not wallow in all the things that are so evidently wrong in the world, of which there are many. And we're going to talk today about an area that we've been focusing on a lot that is clearly an area of the world where a lot has been going wrong, and that is in Ukraine, going wrong largely because of the completely unprovoked and illegitimate, illegitimate from sort of any moral or security perspective, invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And the attention of the world has been focused on this conflict, probably less so in 2023, and that was to be anticipated. And we'll talk a bit about that. But there is this question always of when we pay attention as we should to things that are going unequivocally, abysmally wrong as they are in Ukraine, what do we do about the human dimension? How do we look for areas of compassion, areas of human resilience in a way that doesn't offset the harm and the tragedy that's going on, but also allows for the incredible multiplicity of human experiences, even in the face of horrors of war. And we're going to talk to someone today who has done an extraordinary job with that dimensionality and with that complexity. So Emma, tell us about who we're talking to. 
Sure. So today we're going to be talking to Tim Mack. He is the founder of a new subsect called the Counteroffensive, where he is reporting from Ukraine. Before then, he was covering the war for NPR. He's the author of a book about the NRA called Misfire Inside the Downfall of the NRA. And he's also a former U.S. Army combat medic and EMT. He has just returned to Ukraine after a couple of month break in the U.S. So he is going to be talking to us from Keith. I'm looking forward to hearing what Tim has to say. All right, let's go. Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, Ukraine was clearly the story. And I think one thing that people were legitimately both concerned by and anticipating was that the longer this conflict continued, the more the ability of people outside of, the, like very specifically in Ukraine or in Russia or maybe in Poland, that attention would just inevitably wane in the absence of dramatic shifts in whatever the status quo circa the summer of 2022. In many ways, that's, you know, that's been the case, right? That, that there is a certain amount of dug-in status quo. There hasn't been massive changes in the territorial mix in months. There's not, it's not clear that there will be. And cynical though this statement may sound, you know, a lot of this is what people pay attention to in the news and how that then plays into politics. And human beings in our contemporary world do not stay focused on any one story for very long, even if that story is incredibly consequential. It's just not the way human beings in the modern internet, social media fueled world function. Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And it's one that I've been thinking a lot about. I mean, the whole purpose of my new publication, The Counteroffensive, is to address this issue, right? Which is, do people still care about what's happening in Ukraine? Or is declining interest in this going to lead to some outcome that folks don't want to see? My, the purpose of The Counteroffensive is to write compelling human interest stories and investigations that would be interesting whether they happen in Ukraine or not. And what we hope to do is to write stories that talk about Ukrainian culture and history and language and cuisine and society in a way that's wrapped up in the war itself, and then make you interested in reading about it because it's less about the booms and the bangs, you know, that I think a lot of folks are tired of reading, oh, well, the battle line or the battles happened in this village, and then they moved to five kilometers over to this village, and then now in the south, they're moving elsewhere three kilometers. But the heart of this, the heart of my approach, and I think the heart of what makes a compelling story is empathy. Can I imagine myself in that person's position? I mean, the stories that, that I really like to write are the kinds of stories where anyone in the United States or around the world could see themselves in the people here. So what do I mean? I mean, I, you know, I wrote a, a story last year about a jazz club in Odessa that refused to shut down despite there being no power and there being regular explosions in the city. And that when the jazz club owner realized that he could no longer sell tickets to his club, he decided, well, I'm just going to deliver free jazz performances from the patio instead for everyone in the town to hear. These are compelling stories because they hit us on a level like uh, you may be a jazz aficionado. You know, you may relate to the stories that, that I write about people fleeing the country with their dogs, just their dogs in tow, because, um, because they love their animals that much. I mean, a, a lot of people can see themselves in the places of Ukraine. I think that's what's compelling, and that's what's going to keep people 
continuing to care about stories that come out of here. Yeah, I mean, one thing I really like about your coverage, Tim, I mean, both your formal coverage and kind of the quote-unquote informal stuff, the, for instance, that you've been putting on Twitter, you know, with these short video clips where you can really just see 30 seconds of what it's like, you know, in Ukraine right now in this specific location or, you know, here uh, you put up that tweet about there being a polar bear that had, I think, gotten out of the zoo into a ditch or something like that. I'll let you tell that story if you'd like. But I would love to hear just a little bit since you're in Ukraine right now, what is it like right you know, there right now? What's the mood like? I mean, what's day to day like? I know you just got back, but as far as you've been able to tell so far. The joke about the bear, I, we have to tell the story of the bear since you mentioned Please. that. Because <laughs> yes. I, was, I was in Mykolaiv in the south, a, a place that was under heavy bombardment, and there's a zoo there. And part of our security process, whenever we go to a new place, is we try to figure out, do they have a backup power source? And do they have a bomb shelter? So we call the zoo dutifully, and we say, do you have a backup power source in case the electricity goes out? And they say, yes. And we ask, well, do you also have a bomb shelter? And then they say, they sigh a little bit, and they say, no, but we have, we have a ditch. Um, and we're like, oh. And they said, and there may be a bear in it. <laughs> <laughs> and so that, that's the story of the bear. But to answer your question, what's the, I'm in Kiev right now. And this is a city that over the last couple of weeks, people have not been getting any sleep. Because there have been these drones coming in, these self-destructing drones that target various locations, and then they just blow up. And they've been quite devastating to, I think, the general mental well-being of people in the city, and also to, obviously, the people they hurt directly and physically. But here I am, I'm in the center of Kiev, and I'm looking out my window, and there's a blues, there's a blues bar across the street, and people, it's a nice spring evening, and people are on the patio, having some drinks and listening to some, I can't hear it, but I see someone with an acoustic guitar playing music. People are just, people are having, people are trying their best to live their lives. And that is both a testament to the resilience, um, but it's also the cause of some real deep concern among some uh, Ukrainian soldiers. And you might ask yourself, well, why would that be an issue of concern? Well, there's a large parts of Ukrainian society that are slipping into normalcy now, you know, and Ukrainian soldiers are concerned on the one hand, you know, so I spoke to a Ukrainian drill pilot just today in the hospital, and he's recovering from being near the site of a tank shell explosion in Bakhmut in, in eastern Ukraine, where some of the heaviest fighting is happening right now. And he said he's really concerned about this very issue, that he's worried that people are forgetting about them. That they're trying to live their lives, which was on the one hand admirable and exactly what Ukrainian soldiers are on the front lines trying to fight for. But on the other hand, they're worried getting bypassed and forgotten. And so when life does go back to normal or when people try, do try to adapt, as all humans do, even in terrible and violent circumstances, there's some real concern that, that's, that the folks who are really paying the greatest price are being left behind. Are they concerned as well about? the continuance of Western military aid. I mean, certainly, you know, the United States has continued to spend several billion dollars in military aid. There is the, I guess, imminent delivery of Abrams tanks, which was a kind of real step up in terms of just sheer hardware. 
if one is a military hardware geek, that will mean something. If not, it's basically a much more, you know, land tank than anything that the Ukrainian army had until now, and certainly comparable, actually not more comparable, but better than most of what the Russians have. Although I guess on paper, the Russian military arsenal was much more impressive than it was on actuality, if there hadn't been such intense graft. Um, but is there concern that this is not going to continue? I mean, there's rumblings in the Republican Party, certainly in the United States, that there should be some sort of endpoint, that maybe there should be, the United States should at some point use the amount of military aid as leverage to nudge Zelensky toward negotiations. I mean, right now, the stance of the Ukrainian government is not only we will not negotiate about eastern Ukraine, the Donbass, or the territories that were annexed, but we're going to put Crimea back on the table as part of the conditionality of ending this. I don't know. I mean, I don't know where people are, whether this is everybody postures at their most extreme in public, but I don't know whether that's commensurate with public attitudes or a sense of like, you know, where this goes over the next year. You know, I think that, you know, there's a real there's a real concern that the war will go on and on. I don't think that there's deep concern at this point about eventualities that haven't occurred yet, right? That all attention is on this potential counteroffensive, which may have already started, may not start for a while, may never happen. We really just are in the dark about it, you know? And before you get to the question of, well, you know, are we worried about future aid deliveries coming to Ukraine? I think Ukrainian folks would tell you right now they're getting quite a lot of, of weaponry. And the real concern is a strategic one. Where is this counteroffensive going to take place if it does take place? Um, Zelensky was asked the question you're posing me, and he answered it earlier this week. And he said that he believes that there's a real bipartisan consensus in Washington, D.C. to support Ukraine. Um, and there probably is. Um, that said, there's, you know, I mean, uh, there's a presidential election obviously coming up. and. One thing that I noticed was is that uh, that Donald Trump's most fervent supporters and his base are very adamantly against any sort of aid to Ukraine. I was in Texas in July at the at the National Rifle Association annual convention, and Donald Trump gave a speech there, praising gun rights and basically towing the NRA's line on guns, and that got some polite applause, but the biggest applause line of the night was when he promised to end aid to Ukraine. That was what that conservative base's most enthusiastic response of the day was for. If I'm president, I will have that war settled in one day, 24 hours. How would you settle that war in one day? Because I'll meet with Putin, I'll meet with Zelensky. They both have weaknesses and they both have strengths. And within 24 hours, that war will be settled. It'll be over. It'll be absolutely over. Do you over. want Ukraine to win this war? Uh, I don't think in terms of winning and losing. I think in terms of getting it settled so we stop killing all these people and breaking down this, this country. Now, I want everybody to stop dying. They're dying, Russians and Ukrainians. I want them to stop dying. And I'll have that done. I'll have that done in 24 hours. I'll have it done. You need the power of the presidency to do it. But you but won't say that you want Ukraine to win. You, you know what I'll you say? In, I'll say this. I want Europe to put up more money. 
And so you have to, you have to, I think you have to understand. And of course, looking back at the history of Donald Trump's impeachment, his first impeachment was over the issue of conditionality of aid to Ukraine. So you have, I think you have to anticipate that if he were to be reelected, there would be some real restrictions for the Ukrainians. He said, well, we don't have to worry about it because we will win this war before then anyways. That, that's, been the, that's been the response from the Ukrainian government. I mean, how much of that, I mean, okay, we're talking about a war. Obviously, predictions are a very dangerous game, but does that strike you as a realistic vaguely realistic, completely unrealistic statement when Zelensky says something like that, you know, especially given that we don't really know what's going on with the counteroffensive. Like you said, you're there. You're not sure if it has started already or not, as are the rest of us. Yeah. One, one thing that I've realized is that, you know, Western intelligence failed in a number of ways when it comes to this conflict. Um, you'll remember that the West and the United States in particular predicted that Kyiv would fall in 72 hours. And here I am well over mm. a year later in the center of Kyiv, which is no longer under threat of falling at all. And, you know, the CIA and DIA also did not, did not anticipate very, did not anticipate in the right way the willingness of the Afghan government and military to fight when confronted with the Taliban. Because intelligence is, or American intelligence in particular, is really good at counting tanks and guns and soldiers and ambulances, but very bad because it's very difficult to do at assessing will to fight. What we obviously learned in the aftermath of the initial full-scale invasion is that the Ukrainian military very much had the will to fight, very much had morale. And, but how do you measure morale? How do you measure that people believe that a country is worth dying for or believe in the, country, the, the idea of the nation at all? So when we look at this counteroffensive and whether it be successful, you have to wonder, are the Ukrainian soldiers motivated to defend what they believe to be their territory? And then on the flip side, are the Russian soldiers who are in those trenches as well and in equally miserable conditions, how do they feel about the motivations why they're there? Are they conscripted? Are they well-trained? Are they well-fed? Are they well-rested? And do their defensive lines, however well-built they are, however many tanks they have, however many artillery pieces they have, are they motivated not to throw down their weapons and run away when, they're, when opposing soldiers arrive? These are things that are really, really hard to say, but obviously Ukraine has had what you would call a home field advantage, and they've been very much playing like it. You know, making this a little more of a global <coughs> question, one of the things that became clear in 2022, and I guess has settled into just a structural reality in 2023, is that in the face of the United States and most of Europe proclaiming this kind of an existential, civilizational, generational conflict of import only equivalent to World War II, a lot of the rest of the world said, you know, give me a break with the, everybody there's always some fight somewhere and Russia invading Ukraine is not fundamentally different than Saudi Arabia and Yemen or Ethiopia and Eritrea or you know different issues in territorial integrity in East Timor or 
whatever's going on at any given day in the Congo. I mean, you kind of go through the list, right? And a lot of people said, a lot of sort of non-Western nations and individuals said, this is your conflict, your fight, your region. This is not an existential threat to anything other than the Ukrainians and maybe the Russians and I guess potentially the energy supplies for Western Europe. And we're not going to pick sides here because we don't see this as a grand moral conflict between freedom and you know autocracy or dictatorship. We see this as yet another war between peoples who have been fighting in one form or another, fairly or unfairly, morally or immorally, for however many you know decades, generations, centuries. And you know, enough with the highfalutin, you know, good versus evil, us versus them. Yeah, well, I'd have a few thoughts on that. I mean, firstly, just to start, we're dealing with a nuclear-armed country, which, if threatened and if pushed back in a certain way, may act and has threatened to act, according to certain Russian government officials and, you know, Russian military analysts, has threatened to act and to use nuclear weapons as a part of this conflict. So I'd say that immediately raises the stakes. The second point I'd make is that, that the invasion of... Ukraine dramatically changed the calculations of European countries. You've seen countries that have been neutral for many years, even Switzerland, taking sides in this conflict. You've seen Finland and and other Baltic states um, attempt to join NATO. You've seen Poland in- dramatically increasing its defense budget and and is a staunch supporter of Ukraine. We're seeing the politics of Europe instantly in a moment in February 2022 and ever since change very dramatically in ways with deep geopolitical consequences everywhere. And then my third point that I'd make on this is that energy being a global market, the effects of the war on energy and inflation all around the world have been felt by every single person, I would say, in the world, whether we know it or not. I'd add also that Ukraine being a major, major exporter of food, especially wheat, to most of the world and including in in Africa, has meant that people are going hungry right now in Africa today, cannot get oil to cook their food because of the the huge increases of prices due to the lack of exports from Ukraine that have traditionally gone to places like Syria and to East Africa. That's just the tip of the iceberg, right? That the, this conflict has obviously global effects that have touched all of us. Whether you're someone who in London who has seen their energy bill go up three times or someone in Ethiopia who has been unable to eat because you can't afford the, the cost of flour, which has traditionally been much lower than it is today. Yeah, I mean, here in Athens, we certainly had a, a winter of spiking energy prices that the Greek government very kindly paid for a lot of that. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Tim, you had mentioned before the resilience of the Ukrainian people. And at the start of the war, there was almost like mythical quality to that, right? You know, there's the famous story at Snake Island with the it was a Russian aircraft, you know, go F yourself. And other stories like that were popping up quite a lot. And, you know, at risk of saying this somewhat inelegantly, I mean, does the hype live up to the reality? I mean, what have you seen there since you made a particular mention of the resilience? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't think of the resilience in these kind of one-off stories because uh, although I think they're interesting stories, um, I would I look at social resilience more broadly. I really expect Ukraine expected Ukraine to be in a much worse position 
uh, than it is now. I mean, when the power goes out in a city, you expect mass panic and hysteria and looting and, you know, and general destruction. But it happened in Kiev and it happened in many cities in the winter when it gets down to, you know, negative 30 degrees. And people just found a way to adapt and live. That if you go to Odessa, a city that, that spent months without power, people have found a way to continue their businesses and find ways to, you know, I, I spoke to a furniture store owner who, unable to bring, bring furniture in by the Black Sea, which is traditionally what that port city of Odessa relies on, has created new routes over land through Romania to get the goods he needs. People find a way. People have been able to adapt to this and, you know, maybe with some complaint, but largely without complaint. And right now I'm sitting in central Kiev and the sun is setting and people are outside on a nice spring day enjoying a beer. So, out a little to, you know, your own endeavor with the counter-infestive and the publication, kind of moving on from NPR. You know, your focus now is certainly Ukraine, but do you also have a wider mission for this sort of a i mean there will be a post-ukraine reality hopefully one that is better than not i mean post-ukraine war reality i think there will be a post-ukraine war (laughs) reality that is absolutely a correct corrective to my (laughs) careless statement and one would assume at this point barring something that you know the attention will move on and should you know that this will not be endless war so what are your well you know what how do you apply some of what you're doing now to other global frameworks? Yeah, so, you know, my when I launched the counteroffensive, my statement on it was, hey, this is not just about the spring counter the anticipated spring counteroffensive for which we're named after, that this is a counteroffensive against apathy and cynicism and ignorance about this war in particular and about the rise of authoritarianism in Eastern Europe and in Asia more broadly that we, you know, really want to do with this publication is tell investigative and human stories that feature, that kind of compel us to put ourselves in the shoes of the people that we're writing about. We spoke a little bit earlier about empathy and how that's kind of the basis for the writing that I'm hoping to do. Um, autocracy and, and empathy just don't mix. Autocracy is, of course, when a government is ruled by a single individual and there is no humanizing of other individuals other than the cronies which help support the government and the state. I really do think that that humanizing people and telling their stories, their struggles, their triumphs is a major tool in the battle against autocracy. And whether that happens in Ukraine or in Estonia or in Sudan or in Taipei, um, we're going to be trying to tell those stories for a freer world. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. 
So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote. Nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) We we hear that. (laughs) Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. Tim, I have a personal question for you about your own story. You had an interesting post recently where you talked with a handful of war journalists, right, about their experience and also their advice for you. And, you know, you had this one quote in there that you said there are a lot of things that you don't understand are happening to you when you're in there, meaning Ukraine, that don't hit you until you come out. I was wondering if you could expand on that in particular, because I was like, like, what? You know, what's my reaction to that? And also just generally what your experience has been like covering war in a human way for yourself. Look, I so I'm a I'm I've been a, you know, reporter for a half, nearly 15 years. And, uh, but this is my first war. And so, so, you know, I've been in Ukraine on and off since the day the war started. I mean, I landed in Kyiv the night the invasion began. Talk about timing. Mm. And I've learned a lot about, I mean, having not had any experience covering war before, I mean, I had gone to conflict areas, I, you know, reported from some dicey places, but a full-scale war was not something that I was accustomed to. I guess the way I put it is this, from a, just an experience perspective. The big difficulty is that the folks that you run into, especially when you're trying to tell stories in a traditional way, is that everyone's having probably the worst day of their lives. And you are, hold, it's like you're holding out a cup and people just slowly pour a little bit of their sadness and their grief and their anger into it. And any sort of person who is trying to ask questions and relate, but takes on a little bit of that anger and sadness and grief. And if you don't take care of yourself, um, then that has accumulating and detrimental effects. And I felt some of those. And I'll be writing about that a little bit more, I think, in the future, because I want folks to you know, the idea of the counteroffensive is to not just write about the war, but to have an open reporter's notebook. Here are the things that I, it's a more intimate look at this war and a more intimate look at what's happening on the street level. But also I'm able to, unlike, you know, when I'm working for a, a larger mainstream media institution, I'm more able to talk about my feelings and my experiences in a personal way. I can use the word I, for example. I would not be able to do that at a Politico or, a, a, you know, or NPR. 
Um, look, I mean, I think the long and the short of it is that I've had my, you know, I've had a, a I've had some mental health struggles as a result of this conflict. Um, I, look, I spent five years as a U.S. Army combat medic, and so it's not the it's not the violence and it's not the gore, it's not the blood that bothers me. It's the mothers crying and weeping that really affect me. And I think most people, given the same experience, would also feel the same way. Now, there are ways to address it, and you can look for it in a coming post that I'm actually thinking about a lot and writing about. Hey, how do you exactly fight PTSD? How do you increase resilience so that you're less susceptible to it? And then after an acute traumatic event um, that you're struggling with, how do you, what's the best way to, to try to lessen the effects of it? So I interviewed one of the leading experts on PTSD with some of those things. And actually, since I haven't written about it, I guess we'll have an exclusive on this podcast right now. Oh, uh, there you about, go. <laughs> <laughs> about what's happening next. But like social support and talking to people uh, are the most powerful things that you surround yourself with loved ones who are there to listen and help, that you seek therapy if possible, and that you offload as soon as possible after a, a traumatic event. But also what I learned from, you mentioned a post that I wrote interviewing some very experienced war correspondents, uh, Sebastian Younger, Chris Hedges, Kim Dozier, among them. At least two of them no longer drink any alcohol at all um, and mm. emphasized to me the sort of detrimental long-term mental health effects of drinking too much, especially in a conflict area with all the stress that it involves and the inclination to drink that, that, that comes with it. I spoke to one of CNN's very top international reporters and editors, Nick Robertson, and he says he makes it a rule. He doesn't drink a single drop of alcohol when he's in any sort of conflict area. It is a recommendation I'm not sure I can fulfill to the fullest, <laughs> um, but it's something that I'm very cognizant of. You know, I mean, um, it's one thing to have a drink or two, but there have been times where that temptation to drink five or seven or more has really affected me, and you really feel it in your soul the next day. I mean, it's one of those things as a war correspondent that I've learned about. I try to mix stress and stress relief in a way that's a little healthier form. I mean, I really appreciate your line of empathy being kind of the antithesis of autocracy. The idea of it's hard to go as far as most, you know, deeply controlling governments go or attempt to go and also have that kind of component of empathy. It's certainly a good question whether any governmental system is particularly good at empathy. I mean, I suppose there are some, you know, when you focus on social safety nets and dealing with people's health challenges, aging, education, there's a certain quality of empathy that I think comes with that structurally, although one could maybe even make a greater indictment of the more obsessed you are with power and its maintenance, the harder it is to have anything resembling empathy, no matter what your particular political system is, because that's a particular driver. And the one thing that I think we all need to think about is we have a legitimate and profound desire and need to focus on areas of humanity that are at their worst, and certainly wars and conflicts and the Ukraine war in particular, given how unprovoked it was as an act of aggression. There are others globally, but that one is pretty intense. With 
the reality that the world we're living in is actually more or less marked by a lot less conflict than it was for huge periods of the 20th century, probably huge periods of humanity in general. And it's that kind of balance of us at our worst, which is manifest and also draws our eyes and our attention, not just in a rubbernecking sense, but in a human compassionate sense of we should be attending to suffering and trying to do our best collectively to have less of it and not more of it, right? With the global reality of we seem to actually be doing better doing less of this. And maybe that's why Ukraine has become such a focal point, because there's not that much else. Yes, there is stuff in the Congo and there is Yemen. I mean, there is a lot of other things globally we could all have been paying more attention to that we, than we have been. Yeah, I Rohingya mean... Rohingya in, in Myanmar. But, so I, mean, I wonder, like, what, what do we do with all that? Look, uh, the, I don't really have a lot of time for the argument that some people say that the media is responsible for only focusing on negative things, right? Because right now the media is probably more deeply connected to public attention than at any prior time. You think about newspapers, they were supported by general ads and editors would have this gatekeeping function and decide what news was important and what wasn't. But the internet has meant it meant that news editors and news reporters have a direct insight into what's popular and what's not. And in fact, the economic incentives in the current day are for clicks and for attention. And the public has spoken. They're more attention their attention is drawn to negative things. That media is is simply a reflection of society not the cause of that general instinct. And we can understand that instinct, right? That instinct is protective, that we're more worried about bad news than good news. But in general, I don't have a lot of, have a lot of sympathy for the argument that the media is the cause of it. Um, you know, that said, I think that, the, that we have a great well of empathy within us and that individuals really do care about the world and what things are going right and wrong. I think you're right to take a step back. And I think this podcast is a concept is a great, is a great concept. One, one in which, one in which we look at the incredible progress that humanity has made over the last hundred years, but more importantly, acts to try to preserve that progress and build upon it. Um, and that doesn't happen without a clear eyed view of what's going wrong and what we can, what you can do right. Um, and the inspiring stories of people who are pushing and dragging and pulling humanity into a more positive outcome and future. I think that might be a really perfect note to end this particular chapter of our conversation. And I certainly look forward to seeing what you do now in your next venture more independently, right? And see it's one thing to be part of NPR or Politico, Daily Beast. These are all sort of organizations that are not all as big, but they still are. To be able to kind of bring your own voice more in line with, with the platform that you're creating. And I really look forward to seeing how you create that and continuing that voice. I think some of what you're saying about your own personal story, everybody has their own personal story, and how that interacts with the stories you're reporting is something we could all use, you know, to kind of, I guess, break the fourth wall, you know, the myth of the oracular reporter as opposed to the human being 
trying to do the best that he or she can dealing with the reality, particularly really hard realities in front of them. And I really salute that. So we will watch and listen and learn. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. I think, like I said, I think this show is, is a great step in having the right mentality around viewing world events and, and current events. Um, and I hope that, you know, folks who are listening will, will see some truth in my attitude towards news coverage and how to write about and listen to the voices in Ukraine. And I hope that folks will be interested in subscribing to the counteroffensive. Yeah, go subscribe, guys. Thank you, Tim, so much. Thank you. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. That was a mix of, you know, taking a very difficult, dark topic. I think what's wonderful about Tim, you know, he has this nice quote that I read on his Substacker's Twitter. I can't remember where, you know, to always try to find the joy in things, even in war. That's what kind of was getting him through, he said. So really appreciate that approach to things. And I also really appreciate his pushback at the end there. Read the media and the consumers of media. I think sometimes people feel that the media is a force upon them that they don't have any reactive power to. Apparently, some of the media don't see it that way, right? <laughs> we do have power with what we click on and what we ask for and how we satiate our appetites for negative news or choose not to. So that's a point to remember. Yeah, and again, it's obviously what we're trying to do with the recognition that a lot of this is how people are responding to what is out there and that there is this i think we've repeated this a lot on the show and in our newsletters and everything else and probably should just keep repeating which is there is just a powerful human tendency particularly in the moment to respond to hot emotions negativity outrage fear stories of you know death and carnage i mean it that that makes up a lot of our collective narrative of history right history is often the story of war and death and change and revolution it's rarely 
the story of things going right. I did this book years ago called Peace Be Upon You about Muslim, Christian, and Jewish coexistence, partly as a way of saying you would be hard-pressed to find a history of peace, partly because it's really hard to write an interesting history of peace, Mm. and partly because human beings just don't gravitate toward that. Even tragedy and comedy, right, both have the same whatever is upended dramatically, profoundly. The only difference is at the end of a tragedy, people die, and at the end of comedy, people get married, traditionally. So that's something one has to push against. And part of doing the Progress Network is to try to push against that. Part of what Tim is trying to do is say, hey, there is, there are stories of joy even in the midst of horror, and there are stories of human uplift even in the midst of chaos. And his own point during our discussion of seeing the blues bar across, it's, we're, we're recording this, well, it's East Coast midday, it's evening in, in, in Athens and Kiev. He gravitates towards that, right? He's having this discussion, but he's noticing the guy doing acoustic guitar and even the tension within Ukrainian society of people want to live a normal life and presumably what what everybody is fighting for is so that people can live a normal life. But there's also this agitation that if things, if people are too able to live the life of joy and simplicity on a spring evening, they'll forget about the horror and the conflict. And that's always the problem. That's always the tension. How do you sign, how do you kind of multitask around joy and horror. No, that was so interesting what he said about that tension even existing within Ukraine, right? Like you kind of think like, oh, the West is forgetting about Ukraine. It's so far away. But even in Kyiv, they're forgetting about elsewhere in Ukraine or they're worried that they might forget about them. And I will say too that I didn't just say, you know, go subscribe to his Substack or go read his stuff because he's on the podcast. It's really nice. You know, he has this whole series called Dogs of War. He has pictures of dogs and various, you know, wild scenarios when the human element is absolutely there that's that really is missing from the major outlets that did exactly what you described in the beginning you know two kilometers advance or the russians you know take back territory where it just feels so abstract and technical i'm really glad we had him on and he's a voice to be listened to if you have not already been doing so definitely so let's talk about the news of the week all right So we're going to start with batteries today. Batteries, a really exciting topic that we often ignore because there are a lot of breakthroughs when it comes to batteries, making them smaller and lighter. The problem is that a lot of these breakthroughs are really far away from mass production. So there's a lot of battery news that comes out that we sort of reflexively ignore here at the Progress Network. But um, what just happened is the world's largest battery manufacturer, which is called, the acronym is CATL. You'll be forgiven for not knowing they exist because I didn't know they existed until recently. They have just announced a new condensed battery, which is 500 watt hour per kilogram that will go into mass production this year. What does that mean? Why do we care? It means that things like electric passenger aircraft are now like in the realm of being realistic. Just to give some comparison, the battery cells that are used in Teslas are 272 to 296 watt hour per kilogram, and that's considered really high by current standards. So this is big. It could be really big really soon. Well, that's a very energizing story. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, that was yeah. a bad dad joke. Sorry. That was bad. So it's all right. <laughs> we got to get one in every now and then just to keep people on their toes. <laughs> the groan factor has to be present at all times. And maybe 
with this increased capacity, look, one of the issues which concerns many is in this rush toward electrification of cars mandates that you have in the United States and you have in Europe that all vehicles have to be electric by 2035, et cetera. Separate from the fact that nobody seems to be investing commensurately in charging stations, it's just the, the range capacity issues. It's certainly true in, in most of the world, people drive within a particularly limited radius work to home. But the 300-mile outside capacity of most electric vehicles is a real problem if you're talking about trucking and you're talking about people wanting at least the optionality of driving state-to-state state in the United States or country-to-country country in Europe. So maybe this will be, again, the, one of the real limiting factors has just been the amount of range you can get from a battery. Yes, and there's actually another problem with electric vehicles that I didn't learn about until recently and I'm going to talk about now that this potential new battery could help solve. I found this because of a New York Times article about Norway where 80% of new car sales are electric. So you would think like, oh my God, amazing. And it is, oh my God, amazing. You know, the nitrogen oxides that cause things like asthma, they've fallen sharply. The air is cleaner. The birds are chirping. There are some, there is some grumbling about not having enough charging stations, as you mentioned. But there's also this new problem, which is that Ozo's air has unhealthy levels of microscopic particles generated by the abrasion of the tires on the asphalt. Why is that the case? Because electric cars are much heavier. The batteries inside are much heavier than a, an engine in a normal car, in a combustion engine car. So there's more abrasion due to the weight. And that creates its own you know, problems that now need to be solved, which could be solved by these lighter batteries. Well, that's good. So people will no longer have little tiny microscopic bits <laughs> of rubber in their lungs to compensate for how clean their lungs are because nobody is smoking cigarettes anymore. So if it's not one thing, it's another. Always new problems to solve. But last bit of good news about electric vehicles. This is a little bit of a wonky one. Hannah Ritchie covered this on her, I think it's a Substack. It's not a Substack, some sort of online publication. In 2022, EV sales were 14% of new car sales. Now it is going to be 18% in 2023. And you might say to yourself, well, that doesn't sound like that big of a change. But compared to in 2020, it was just 4%. EV sales jumping in 2022 compared to the years prior. The International Energy Agency releasing a fresh report on global EV sales an outlook for the industry. Yeah, so the IEA is sort of combining here battery EVs and plug-in hybrids together as electric cars, they're calling them. So they're going to see that, they're saying that sales will jump 35% in 2023. Now, last year, they sold, we sold globally 10 million. We, the industry sold 10 million globally. They're seeing 14 million units sold in 2023 and market share jumping from 14% to 18% globally for these electric cars. So one little nugget here is China still dominates that, that EV market. 60% of all electric car sales happened there last year. More than half of all electric cars in the world are in China. What's happening here is that not only are the numbers growing really fast, but actually even the estimates are continued to be off. It's kind of like solar power is what Hannah Ritchie says, that estimates continued to be off about how fast solar was going to grow. And we're seeing the same pattern right now with EVs. So they think, for instance, the International Energy Agency estimates that updated figures for 2030 is going to be 36% of global car sales will be EVs. And Hannah's point is that's actually probably going to be wrong. It's going to be revised upward. So 
EVs are exploding even more than it might seem right now. And to be clear, Emma does mean that metaphorically. <laughs> yes. So in case anyone is concerned. Abrasing the street, <laughs> but not exploding. <laughs> yeah. Just so we're, people get a little touchy about, you know, the word exploding and vehicles in motion. So these are good things. I, I do wonder how that's going to play on the United States with this 20, with these 2035 targets. And I think those are probably just like a lot of the carbon emission targets. They're more aspirational than they are realistic. The only question is, do governments that are going to be in charge of enforcing these rules, will they clue into the aspirational part before they start enforcing unrealistic mm. targets? Probably yes, if you know, judging from past behavior. And the infrastructure of charging is going to be important, even if you do have lighter higher range batteries, which again, it would seem people are waking up to, right? So even in Norway, which has done a much better job with its own infrastructure, people are saying, hey, if we're all going to drive electric vehicles, we better have high power charging stations such that we can do this in, I don't know, I guess it's 10 minutes to top off in a legitimate way, which is still way longer than people have been used to in terms of how long it takes to fill up your gas tank. But even so, Yet is the last thing to add to that too about the U.S. context is that the long-range issues that you mentioned are, of course, much more severe there in somewhere like Norway. And Axios actually did like a test road trip in the U.S. coast to coast a couple of months ago to see if they could do it with an electric car. And the result was, yes, it's possible with very, you know, considered and careful planning beforehand, which basically means it's not possible. So we have a little bit of ways to go there, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, kind of, it's a real damper on the traditional college, like road trip, <laughs> and then let's plan it for a few weeks. You can map out where the stations right. are, and then we'll go on the road trip. <laughs> so thank you all for joining us yet again for What Could Go Right. Please sign up for the Progress Network newsletter, which is also called What Could Go Right. Go to the website or on mobile or on a desktop, sign up. It is free, and it will bring you more of these news stories every week many more of these news stories every week and thank you so much for all of your time attention and care yeah thank you so much everyone thank you zachary as per usual and we'll see you all next week what could go right is produced by andrew steven executive produced by jeff umbro and the plug conglomerate to find out more about What Could Go Right, The Progress Network, or to join the What Could Go Right newsletter, visit theprogressnetwork.org. Thanks for listening.